Welcome to the Valarin Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Chris Vaughn. This is Benjamin Carsage. I'm Aaron Smith. Thanks for listening. Let's do this. Welcome to the podcast. Um, quick introductions. Uh, my name is Aaron Smith. Um, I uh, currently work uh, as a consultant at a company called Valarin Consulting um, with my uh, my good friend uh, and, and peer Ben here, who will introduce himself in a second. What I have done for the last 10 years is mostly work at a company called Riot Games. Uh, you may have heard of them if you're into the game industry at all. Um, and there um, I started as uh, an intern back actually in 2009, like right before League of Legends launched and worked all the way up to a senior management uh, role where I was focused on kind of human dynamics, organizational design, uh, project management, uh, management, um, and then also uh, my personal favorite, a lot of corporate training around uh, what we call in software agility and uh, growth mindset and like how to interact effectively to get work done in the modern age. Um, yeah, so Aaron's mentioned me a couple times. My name is Ben. Um, I have, I'm also currently working at Valerian Incorporated. Uh, I've been at Riot Games for the last eight years. Before that, I spent four years in the army. Yeah, I was an officer there. Uh, and for the last, I guess those, those entire 12 years, I focused a lot on how do I lead and serve effectively uh, in different environments? My time at Riot was spent in development management, uh, which is a production role. Um, how do teams work well together? How do you help them work even better together? Um, what are the dysfunctions that can emerge? How would you resolve them? And that sort of thing. I also did a lot of work on um, creating systems, work systems that, that teams or organizations would use. Um, and so now I, I am also a consultant with uh, Valerian Inc. And I do um, coaching as well, professional coaching or leadership coaching. My name is Chris. Um, I have uh, I am currently working as a freelancer in the audio industry. I have worked for years uh, since roughly 2002 or so in the audio industry. I've done a lot of a lot of composition, a lot of uh, sound design. I've worked on titles here and there. I've done implementation. I've done composition, engineering, you name it, just about everything. I've worked a lot in the radio industry, producing a lot of uh, radio jingles and radio production packages for people. I've worked on a bunch of different teams. I've also worked as a corporate IT guy, um, just working uh, internally. So I share some common space with uh, my two colleagues here in terms of uh, corporate experiences and teams and team building and those sorts of things. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. So I'm a professional audio producer, composer, musician slash IT nerd. That's me. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background on uh, what we're going to focus on today. Um, and uh, we're both, Ben and I have actually been excited uh, to talk about this for a while. Um, more or less what we did a couple weeks ago was we went through the process of uh, creating sort of a logo and art assets for our new consultancy. And this is kind of, it appeared on the surface was kind of a trivial thing. But as we started to get into it, we realized that there were a lot of relevant lessons and dynamics occurring uh, during the process that were uh, hearkening back to a lot of our experiences working in software development. And one 
category in particular that is super relevant in the software space and also in the corporate space in general that a lot of people do not talk about enough, which is leading and managing a product and what the role of the product lead is. And uh, this might sound technical, but it's not intended to be because actually I think most of the realizations we came to were that human dynamic and the way relationships function and, and maintaining sort of like a really po- like healthy and positive and forward mindset was, was really like the key. So the conversations we found ourselves having were not, how do you create a spec document or like, how do you run the meetings? It was really like, how do you know when to cut your losses? How do you know when to stop investing in a direction that is not bearing fruit? How do you give feedback to a team member who's like kind of falling off the wayside with the vision? How do you communicate the vision? What is the vision? How do you take new learnings that you've got through the last couple iterations and reincorporate that back into your understanding of the vision? How do you interact with the other key leaders on the team? Like I was operating as a stakeholder, really uh, more, more almost like as an advisor and somebody was invested in the project, but Ben was the creative director and the product lead. He was running the show. And I had a stake in the outcome of that. Like I had opinions and things that I wanted to be incorporated into the design, but there was a natural conflict there. It's like Ben was more present. He was on the ground every day. He was more directly attached to the learning. So like, how did our relationship work and how did we balance the decision-making power? Because at a lot of companies, a guy like me in that context would come in with a giant hammer and say, no, I don't like that. Cancel that and go back to the old thing. But that would have been highly ineffective. And Ben had more on the ground knowledge than I did. And there was a certain amount of trust that had to be developed and actually role in relationship design between Ben and I, where he had to say, hey, look, if you can't make it to this meeting this week, that's fine. But you've got to let me be the executive decision maker. You have to trust what I'm going to do here. And it's so simple, so painfully simple, yet it was hard and it did require us to have some relationship confrontations. And this is precisely the kind of stuff we see teams struggle with so much in the software space. So, so these are the sorts of things that we really want to go into today as we talk basically about the journey of getting ourselves to a place where we had an awesome logo. And what was even more, more exciting than all this little stuff that we want to talk to you guys about and discuss amongst each other today is the fact that we actually came out with a really awesome product that we felt really hit our vision. And that was such a rewarding experience for us as well to really like touch on all of these insights that we often teach and that we reinforce when we're working with students or when we're working with teams. So that's kind of what we're focusing on today is basically the role of the product lead, the role, the idea of product management, what effective product management is, and also, um, you know, really uh, effective relationships and decision-making dynamics in, in, within a team. And I'd say kind of probably following that too would be like iteration, growth mindset, cutting losses, managing investment, uh, managing effort, that kind of thing. We knew we wanted a logo, um, and I'd done a little bit of looking into like, how do you get a logo for something these days? Should I hire a graphic designer, or do, what, what do I do with this? Um, gotten a cool recommendation from um, my sister. She's a, a software engineer, um, really good one. Uh, and she provided me the CrowdSpring as a resource. It was like, hey, check them out. They worked really well for us. We've gotten a few logos through them. So I was like, okay, cool, that's awesome. Um, and we started... Uh, trying to figure out, okay, what's the 
when are we going to do this? What does this look like? And it takes took a week and how is this going to go? And I realized as I was rolling up to it that I actually had a lot of uh, thoughts and really strong feels about it. And um, I was in my coaching session with my coach. Um, coaches should have coaches, you know. Um, and that what came up in that was that, hey, you really need to ask for what you're looking to do with this and make sure that Aaron, your business partner, is tracking and he's on board with where you want to go. And so after that, I went to Aaron. I was like, hey, I want to direct this thing. I want to be the person who's going to be like giving a lot of the feedback and really on top of this. I have a, an idea of where I want to go. And um, is that cool with you? And and so what was interesting about that is I didn't even realize this was happening at that time. I knew we were kind of figuring out who each other were going to be. But we were right away starting to have a conversation about what was the role that each of us were going to play as it related to the product. Um, with Aaron being and accepting the role of like, I'll be the stakeholder. I'll be the one that's maybe less involved. And Ben, I'm going to give you a lot of the authority and direction rights as this thing goes forward. Um, and so then then we once that was squared away, we had that in good space. Um, then we started going and we were like, okay, cool, what does this look like? And I remember in the, one of the first conversations, Aaron, you, you'd said something to the effect of like, man, I didn't even realize what was involved in this. Um, and and I, I, I who'd, I've spent more time at Riot on art teams. Um, I'd spent a lot of time doing like character design and, and, and stuff like that. And not that I'm fantastic at it, but I led teams that did a lot of it. And I knew like, no, there's a lot that goes into like hitting the right feel, getting the right, anytime you're in that creative space, whether it's music there's reason, or art. There's a reason why I went to work on tech teams at Riot. Like when I, <laughs> when I, when you said that, I was like, oh, secret, like subtext responses. Thank God he's going to take point on this because this is not my cup of tea. So. Yeah. And, and, and what was really cool. And, and by the way, it was awesome how much you did engage throughout the process despite that. Um, but, but you, you recognize like, oh shoot, there is a lot here. Right. We started talking about like, what are the keywords? What's the colors that are interesting? What are the themes we're going for? Are there motifs we like? Like all this different stuff started coming up. Um, I actually just want to like ask, like, what was going through your mind as suddenly we started going into like, well, what are we going for? There's a couple things going through my mind um, and, and it's it, some of them are kind of uh, cute a little bit. Like the, the point I just made that was a sort of tongue in cheek was right on. Like I was actually really happy that you wanted to take point on that because I didn't feel uh, like I really wanted to be directly involved in the more artistic elements of it. Um, and it felt good that you, when you stepped up and said, I want to do this, there was a clarity brought to that role in that relationship that I was like, this is awesome. Like, I don't have to worry about this as much because he's into this and he wants to take point on this. Um, at the same time, ironically, throughout the process, I recognized that I had more and more of an interest in the outcome than I thought I would. And, uh, it's the, it, back to the, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the vision and like how that evolved and how that started. Cause I think that that was one of the real key kind of clutch things that we did was we came in with like, certainly not a fully formed or not a perfect idea of what we wanted, but we came in with as clear of an idea of what we wanted as we could come up with at that time. And we actually invested in putting the effort out to be like, okay, how should this logo feel? What is the sort of essence of the company and the, the feel that we're trying to convey? Like what, how do we want people to react to Valerian? Like how do we want people to react to us? 
And as we discussed those things completely separate from the art, I realized that I had a big personal investment in that stuff. So that was really cool. So I really liked getting to participate in the formation of the vision, even though how it manifested in terms of the visuals I was less concerned about. So that that was kind of my reaction actually was like, I was really excited to have clear roles and responsibilities built with you. And it, it did take a burden off me because, you know, I, I wanted to focus on other things anyway. Um, but uh, it also helped me feel like I could be involved in a very clear way, like with feeling like I knew what was expected of me. And, uh, and I also knew that because we had had that discussion, we could continue to negotiate that. Um, and that, that felt really, really good. Like there was an openness that was brought in early on into that discussion where it's like, okay, even if this doesn't work out, we can talk about it. And, uh, that's a point worth, I think really emphasizing because so many times in my career, uh, that environment didn't really exist. And, uh, I think a lot of times where roles and responsibilities end up being unclear, it's because it actually is a really scary thing to talk about for a lot of reasons. And it's not something I want to go into too much right now. One reason actually is like, there's a, there's a spotlight shined on you. The moment you say, I'm going to do these five things, I'm going to be responsible for these five things. And that can be scary. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, well, what is your partner going to do? If you drop the ball on one of those, is he going to flog you over the head with a wet noodle? Is he going to yell at you? Like, you know, it's, it's actually a lot more comfortable to have things be obtuse and to not really, and, and have plausible deniability for everybody. It's like, whose responsibility? Oh, we didn't really discuss it. It could have been anyone's, you know, like, so th I think that was a really awesome thing. And I did feel a certain amount of confidence and security in that clarity. So that was, that was a big one for me. I also think something you're pointing to is, um, how many times have we been on projects where you had a stealth stakeholder? Someone who like the project was spinning up, you had a product that you were trying to develop or something you were trying to achieve. And someone was like, oh yeah, whatever you guys do is fine. And then now over time you realize, no, it's not. No, you actually have very strong opinions. You know, one one thing that I think is so powerful that just came up while you, you said that, that I, I just find, found hilarious and continue to find hilarious about software teams and corporate teams and stakeholders. It's like the less clear the role of stakeholder is, the more of them you have. And the more clear the role of stakeholder <laughs> is, the fewer of them you have. Because it's like the moment you sit down with those guys, the investors, and you say, hey, you're responsible for shit too here, guys. Like yep. if you don't show up to the meetings, you don't get to like throw roll a grenade into the room, you know, six months later, cause you don't like one of the outcomes. And then they're like, Oh shit, I have to do stuff here. Actually, I think I'm going to go ahead and bow out. <laughs> and it's like, I, ironically, as a, as a, a result of that clarity, that role clarity is that you end up getting a much more kind of coherent, cohesive, crisp team of people that are focused on adding value to the project instead of just having their fingers in the cookie jar. So no, I'll never forget. And this was actually an awesome self-awareness, someone at Riot, an engineering lead, um, it was after we'd done uh, a big project, the, the Maps project, and we were doing the, the retrospective for it, and he stopped because we were talking about stakeholder and stakeholder engagement and what is a stakeholder and all these things, and he stopped and he was like, I just realized I'm a stakeholder to 38 teams. And he's like, there's no way I'm actually a stakeholder to 38 teams. And it was like, and it, I loved it. I loved the self-awareness. I loved it. He was I can't be. I can't be because just being the stakeholder for probably 20 teams is a full-time job. And here he is on paper, a stakeholder for 38 teams. And what does that really mean? Well, to your point earlier, 
somehow in the organization, we want him to be responsible for, for what's coming out of them, or he wants to feel like he has responsibility or impact. But the reality is he has nowhere near enough time to do that. And I think that was, in our case, something that was really, really cool that happened up front, which is you took on the stakeholder role and stepped back and you were happy to do it. And I was happy to step into. And then there was this like mutual acceptance of the role that the other had. Like you let me be the person who made a lot of the like I wrote I wrote what the vision was. I wrote here's the key words and I sort of had a lot more control of that. And I also had to really respect the fact that you had a perspective I didn't have. You were outside of it where I was like in it and and working on all the little nitty gritty detail and holding the vision and trying to make sure we were going in a good direction. You were there going, is this what we're looking for? Is this okay? And by the way, one thing I want to emphasize there, I think is super important that I think both of us realized quite early was that uh, I think we both had a, a pretty high degree of comfort for whatever reason with a failed iteration or, or some kind of <laughs> failure, some kind of micro failure. And actually that is, I think, key because you put <laughs> me in an environment where my boss looks at me and says, Aaron, you better make sure Ben doesn't fuck this up. And if he does, or if I see some work that I don't like, I'm holding you accountable. All of a sudden now I'm incentivized to micromanage you, to be involved all the time and to not create that space for you as the product lead to make good, high, as high quality decisions as you can with expediency. And, and the whole process slows down. And that was interesting too, because there were times where like, I wasn't sure we had the conversation and you were like, Hey man, I think we need to go forward with this. And I'm like, I don't know. And, but I, I decided to take my hands off the wheel and be like, you know what? I'm going to trust you. You go do what you need to do. Uh, because I and you valued in that moment, the expediency and, and moving to the next iteration more than we did the, uh, eliminating all chance of failure. Like, and, and that's such an important thing. I like, and again, we're going to talk more about this, I think through subsequent podcasts and stuff about growth mindset and iteration and, and accepting, you know, the realities of failures and moving past them and stuff. But like, I, I just, I think that that was uh, something that was present for both of us, which is like, Hey, if we screw this up, we can always pivot. We, we can, we can yep. change it next time. But what we should never do is allow a sort of glacial decision-making simply because we're uncomfortable with the idea that we might drop a ball at some point. Like, and, and, and that's, I think what brings in a lot of those controlling behaviors and things like that is when you start to get paranoid about that stuff. It's like, Oh my God, if I'm not in ben, up in Ben's, you know, grill 24 seven about every decision he makes, then if it's, if he screws up, it's going to be my fault. It's like, right. it doesn't matter. That's not what's relevant. It's like, what's good for the product. What's good for the team moving forward. And how do we make the best decision we can in this moment quickly? Because we, because it's better to get more iterations in than it is to make the, you know, to squeeze out that last 10% of efficacy. I think part of that comfort with failure was we both were more oriented towards the outcome than any particular solution. We were both really thinking about, we have a vision for what we want this to be. That's where we're going. And what's fascinating is, as you describe, like, hey, I took my hands off, man, there were times Whereas the person who is sort of functioning as the on the ground director or product lead or whatever you wanted to call me, um, that role of like trying to hold the vision, articulate that to the team and, and make sure we got to a good place. We, we got to the outcome we were looking for. There were times where I was, I'll be honest. I was like, part of me wants Aaron to just come in and solve this for me. 
right? There's stress on me. And I don't, I don't know if I exposed that to you while we were going through it, but there were times where I was just like, man, this is, there's all this responsibility that's on me as I'm like going through and I'm giving this feedback and I'm rolling through. And there was a part of me that was like, it would be so nice if I could just, if, you know, like, oh, Aaron, just tell me what to do, right? You're the stakeholder. Where do you want to? And, and I constantly had to like check that in myself and be like, no, this is, I, I wanted this role. I, had, I'm holding this vision. I know where we're going and Aaron trusts me. Um, and so let me go forward and, and continue to make these calls. And again, finding the balance between, I want feedback. Uh, I want to know where you're at. I want the perspective that you have the broader perspective and simultaneously, I also need to make calls and I need to be able to push back against you and I need to be able to go where I need to go in order to achieve that vision. There's like a road you walk there when you're setting up a product and when you're trying to get to an outcome. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so right off the bat, there was a lot of conversation about what are the roles that we had. Then we started getting into it. And I think there's something I wanted to really highlight Originally, um, I think I had a, I viewed it as more complex than Aaron did, but really quickly it became even more complex. And you start realizing just how, like, just it seems like, oh, you just need a logo. It's not that big a deal. But there are so many different aspects to it. Like the initial vision brief we gave immediately generated a ton of, of what could have been really cool ideas, but totally weren't for us. And we immediately started realizing like, oh, shoot, the brief was not quite right. Um, like we, we, you know, we sort of had this, um, we, we'd mentioned the idea of armor in the brief and we just got, I'm not even kidding before the end of the second or third day, I think we had received 76 helmets for different variants of helmets. And, and it was, it was like, you know, after the first day we were like, why is everything a helmet? And then after the second day we were like, okay, please stop giving us helmets. But what was interesting is that was us taking our vision that we'd spent time on and we'd worked together to build and we were like, this is what we want. And then we took it to a team of people and we said, here, make us, make us a cool logo. Let's get this started. And they, for some reason, like 80% of them at least were like, oh, they're looking for a helmet. Um, and, and again, we were almost like, are we looking for a helmet? Is a helmet okay? And it really highlighted to me, it's more complicated and you don't know what you what you actually want when you start. The outcome was still there. We knew broadly, we were actually shockingly aligned throughout the whole process about what was a good idea, what was a bad idea, what we thought might work, what wouldn't. Um, but a lot of those early ideas were like, well, I don't, I really don't think a helmet is the right thing. And, and it took us, it took us a while to figure that out and to reintegrate those ideas into the vision as like, well, what is working then? If it's not a helmet, what is it? And how do we get people to stop giving us helmets? Um, because again, they just, <laughs> we're, like I said, almost let me jump helmets. in there. Let me jump in there for a second real fast. So good call, Ben. Uh, I was approached not long ago by a game team who had, they're working on a game and they're interested in me doing music for their game. And so we were having a conversation about the creative direction of the game. And, um, it was one of these odd things. We were having video chats back and forth and they, as you described, had spent a lot of time working on the vision for kind of what they wanted their game to sound like. And they had all these different adjectives for what they were looking for. Um, and so I, I came up with a couple of examples and I sent them back and was met with this. This is not what we're looking for at all. You know, essentially, you know, helmets, if you will. Right. And, and I got a lot of that. This is not really. And I said, well, but this is here's what you described to me. 
here's what I gave you. And so I kept watching this guy as he was describing this and the, our listeners won't be able to hear this, but he was making this, this gesture with his hands. He kept, he kept making a guitar gesture, like someone striking this big power chord, right? And that's not at all what they were asking for. Like the words that they were conveying to me had nothing to do, right? So all of their vision, all the communication they had and these briefs that they had made and all these meetings they had had on the direction and the vision and the, the type of game, the feel they wanted their game, none of them, you know, had to have gone to the point where we need a, a like a hard guitar sound in here like that is not this didn't come up in discussion so they didn't communicate that to me so when i was communicating back to them the stakeholders like here's what i've got for you they're like no this is all wrong you know and it's the same kind of thing you've got to have those things down so this is a really fruitful discussion we're having here on on how we iterate and how we come up with not just what we want in our briefs, not what we want for ourselves, but how do we communicate that to others so that you don't get 76 helmets back in the mail in two days, right? We take so much for granted, I think, about the way that effective communication of vision and and desire and outcome works in the software space. We're so technically minded that one of the mistakes I see consistently made is like, hey, look, I wrote the vision down, it's eight bullet points. It's on a slide deck somewhere. I created a design document. I gave you the design document. Why can't you make the thing the way that I like it? And, and I think the, the, the story that Chris just told to me illustrates yeah. a point that you see so often, like that, that, that power cord strumming, that body movement that that guy was doing on the call was like conveying a feeling. Like he couldn't, he was not capable of articulating it in words. And this is one of the things we take for granted so much when it comes to product management, I think, where it's like, especially if it's something like that has a feel or it's like a game or there's like inherent heavy design or art or anything with it is just because it's written down in a document doesn't mean anything. Like this is among the most lossful communication I can imagine. Like, the, like if that first draft you made of that design document, you'll be lucky if 15% of that shit that's in there actually ends up <laughs> in the real product. And it's not because your design is bad. It's not because you don't understand, but it's because there's so much uncertainty packed into that one. And, and there is, we talk about this concept called icky wissy, like I'll know it when I see it. That was like Ben and I had put pictures of armor in our vision document that we sent out and they just latched onto that for some reason that we couldn't have anticipated. And the teams just ran off and did their own thing. And then they came back and they're like, well, clearly you want cool helmets. And we were just like, was armor even like in the pictures? We like went back and checked the, oh, we're like, oh, oh shit. Okay. Oh, that's where they went. Interesting. <laughs> and, it, and it's, and it's, it's so, so important. I think when you're talking about product management to recognize that that is not a singular handoff that occurs where you dust yeah. your hands off and you go, okay, I wrote it down. I told you what it was. I'll see you in six months. Like this, we're going to talk about this more, but like product managers and product leaders and stakeholders need to be constantly involved and communicating yeah. over and over and just like almost like a flashing light, blasting that vision out repeatedly time and time again, giving feedback on the ground every day because the vision itself is evolving and, and, and the communication of the vision, like I said, it's lossful. Like I can sit there and think that I'm articulating it to you exactly as I mean it, but like you could run off 
you could take one word could stick out to you and you can run off in a completely different direction than I expect. And, and when we're humans in a bucket working together, we have to just know that that's part of the process and we have to keep coming back together and realigning on the vision every day. Um, and, and that was such a big light bulb for me, I think, to see that in real time when we were doing this, because I've seen that really as a major fail failure point. There's this constant desire to like lock everything down and like, no, I wrote it on the document. Just look at the document. Look at the slides. Everything's in there. And it's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. When it's there's a there's a, a lie that you tell yourself that that one. Yes, it is. And that two, the vision doesn't need to change there. No, this this doesn't need to shift. Um, and what that leads to is when you get something back that's not what you expected, rather than going, huh, where do, where did they get that idea from, from what I said? And how do I make it so that they might understand more where I'm trying to go? Instead, you go, no, that's a bad developer. That's a bad artist. That's a bad whatever. They're not very good. We gave them exact. We gave them exactly what we were looking for, and they didn't come back with something good. So it must be their problem. It, and it's it's again to your point. There's so much more that's not said that than is said. Figuring that out. That's why iteration is so important. Um, that's why there's that need. And this is where for me that idea of feedback. So when we got the helmets back, I could have just said um, one again even. To be honest, we didn't know if helmets were what we wanted or not. We were sort of like, well, we can see how helmets capture some of the themes we were talking about. Are they right? Does that sound good? Um, but even there with the feedback I, I would give, I could have just said, no, this is bad. No helmets or something like that. And we did end up getting to the point where we said no helmets um, because we found them to be too aggressive or defensive. And neither of those were things we were going for. Um, and Instead, though, the feedback I would give was this is what's not coming through for me and this is what I want to see more of. And it's and again, it, you know, something you commented on was the feedback that I needed to give was not directed at them or their capability or, or and I, didn't, I don't know who they are. Right. They're random people that found CrowdSpring and are doing graphic design on it and logo design and whatever. Um, but what I what I needed, I needed something from them and they, I knew that like some of them could get there. Some of them could get to, to an outcome that was good. And I had to treat every single person there like they could get there. Um, otherwise I'm just going to be like casting them to the side as like, nope, I don't like that idea at the first read. And it's funny because some of the really good designs we got came from people who initially gave us stuff that wasn't good. Yeah, this is fun. This is fun stuff. And, and actually, one of the things I think we're circling around right now is like that role, the role that sort of internalizes and, and holds, like holds the vision close and, and, and every form that it takes, like its evolution, its, its various levels, its communication. And, and I think, Ben, what I love about the way you handled that situation and, and the thing I was trying to give you feedback on was that when when something would come back that didn't make sense to you, like there were a couple of times where I remember you were scratching your head. I'm like, where the hell did this guy get this? <laughs> like, and, um, and, and again, if repeat after some repeated scenarios there, we have, we're having some other conversations, right? But like the, the thing that I loved was that you, you internalize this idea that like as the product lead, 
I'm responsible for the flow of information and the understanding, the team understanding the vision and making sure Mm -hmm. I'm aligned with the stakeholders on the vision, making sure I understand the vision. And and when something would break down, you'd step in and you'd say, okay, I'm going to reiterate the vision. Or I'm going to, I'm going to articulate this in a different way, or I'm going to blast this out again or, or, or whatever. And, and I, I think that that I think again was one of those light bulbs for me about the role of the product lead is that in so many corporate environments, the product lead is saddled with a lot of kind of logistical work. Um, at a lot of companies, for example, you see a hybridized product and sort of development or product and project management role. And I think when you load this person up and you make them this kind of generic production person, one of the risks that, and I'm not saying that's a bad model, I'm just saying one of the risks that comes with that model is that um, there's a level of presence that is required uh, intellectually, emotionally, and physically with the team every day to like constantly reiterate that vision and hold the evolution of that vision. And, Mm -hmm. and, And I think that when you have a product lead that's present and on the ground and just constantly flashing that out to the team, like this is the direction we're going, this is what we want. Did, did you guys see what Jim came up with yesterday? That's exactly what I'm looking for. I just talked to the stakeholders. They loved this stuff. They didn't love this. I agreed. Like that presence every day just constantly helps. Like, cause, cause the team is just always going to start wandering off the path because the path is, is ethereal. You know, it's natural. So, so the, the product lead is kind of scooping both on the left and the right back onto the path, back onto the path, back onto the path. And like the amount of waste that's removed there, the amount of effort that's saved, the amount of morale that's preserved on the team, the amount of engagement that's created is it's like almost innumerable because it's so far up the pipeline. It's just right. like changes up that far up the pipeline save so much trouble downstream. It's I think I think this is one of the reasons I have such a deep belief that really really talented, good, present product leads that hold the vision effectively will do more for a software team or do more for a team than almost anything else. Like it's hard to imagine something that has more of an impact than that. Um, oh, it's the it's that holding of the end state. And again, that like you, I love how you described it as like you're, you're, you're keeping people on the path and you're also turning that path where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you had some goal that was far off, right. You had some North star, you had some vision, you had some thing. And again, we articulated in that early brief, but it just, it kept changing. And, it, and in so many, sometimes it actually shifted location and other times it just became more refined. And that was, there was an interesting thing that emerged while I was going through the process of like directing this, which is I started doing these sort of daily updates and it was based on the summation of all the feedback I'd given and all that I'd learned. And it, what I was trying to do with that was say, okay, we set a thing and you guys responded with a bunch of ideas. And, and one, I'm thankful and appreciative of the fact that you came back with a bunch of ideas, that you put yourself out there and tried something. Um, because that's, we need that. We need that to get going. And I learned from that and I learned from that with you and I gave you individual feedback, but I also took this and I, I sort of summed it up and I said, now on, on like day two, here's what we've learned. And here's how I want day three to maybe look a little different. And it was funny because as I was going through that, the feedback, when I 
when I had to generalize it like that, it had to stay outcome focused because so many different people were trying so many different ideas in order to try to reach a solution that I couldn't be like, well, no, I, what I really want is um, I want you to do this particular drawing style differently. I, I didn't, I n- almost never got into that level of detail. It was always the thing that I'm not feeling in this is that combination of ancient mythological and ancient classic. Like the, the, we had these as two themes, the sort of an, an elvish fantastical theme and a Roman theme and like bringing those together. And I just started, that became more and more and more refined. And we started understanding why it was that we wanted that and what that might look like over time. But there was this idea of take that vision. Now, what have you learned? Not just about any particular solution, but also about the vision itself and share that back, share that back so that people can make a better next effort. Um, that, that, I, that idea was key. And I think that's, again, where the product lead, like, do they have the headspace to do that? Do they have the, the time, you know, to your point about the hybrid role, they need to have that time to go, here's the outcome and here's the vision. And I'm constantly refining and shifting and making it higher detail, not for my own benefit, not for my stakeholders benefit, ultimately for the benefit of the audience. Um, and and more immediately for the benefit of my team so yeah. that they can move towards it. And there's there's something really powerful there too, which is that by staying outcome focused, you really actually create an innate respect for the craft and creativity of the individual team members too. When you start yeah. getting into like, and I'm sure Chris, you've experienced this. I think we've all experienced this in our careers in some manner or another where somebody comes in and micromanages us and is like, do it like that. I don't like that. This line should be over here. Like, And it's just you start to feel so constrained that the, a lot of the flavor gets lost from the work. And also, um, I think what the leaders that do that often don't realize is they create a preclusion, which is that um, the individual team member might come up with something that they didn't expect. Um, that actually meets the vision more than what their direction is leading to. And and that happened to us a handful of times. I think that's worth noting as well that there were some designs that came up where we were like, holy fuck, this is on the money. Like I wouldn't yep. have even gone here, but this person just came up with this because we focused on outcome. And that was such an amazing thing when that happened. And that really actually generated some of our best leads. Like I think yep. what we should do actually, if when we eventually post this up is we should attach some of the assets and like kind of where we ended up final and, and talk about some of the, like the, the actual assets around certain key points on the path and maybe talk about our original or put up our original vision document and stuff, just kind of illustrate the point. But I think actually the next place we're going here, we've kind of talked a lot about the nature of the product lead in that role in this context. Um, you know, where we've kind of ended up is actually talking about how a a product lead can effectively interact with individual team members and the team. Um, Because I think that that ended up being such a powerful set of lessons um, uh, for us, actually. Yeah. So like um, one of the things that Ben and I talked about, for example, was um, I saw that Ben was so kind of studious and invested in the individuals. And because he was so present and on the ground and giving feedback every day, he almost naturally started to feel an attachment to each team member and just go like, oh my God, this guy's so close. Or, oh my God, she's been, she had this one really awesome design, but I just can't get her there. And we started to have conversations about like, well, how far do we go? Like how much feedback do we give before we kind of cut our losses? 
with this artist. And that was actually a really difficult conversation to have because, you know, these people were all working their asses off and they were all trying really hard, but some of them were just not clicking with the vision. They just, they just couldn't, couldn't get on the path no matter how hard we tried. And it could have been a failure in us. It could have been a failure in them. It could have been that the vision wasn't articulated clearly enough, but like there was a point where we had to say, Hey, investing in this artist further past this point is actually not a good use of time because Ben was actually getting himself into a place at one point where he was giving so much feedback every day that it was like, I feel like his hands were about to fall off because he was typing like paragraphs of feedback to like 40 different artists. And, and some of them were actually generating really good iterations and the, some of them not so much, but he was, he was yep. very egalitarian about it. And I was like, Hey man, like, I think we might need to, you know, cut some of these. And so that was actually ended up interestingly being a lot of our conversations at the sort of end of day reviews was like, Hey, you know, this guy's been going for five days now and he hasn't generated any more value than he did five days ago. I think it's time to cut him loose. Um, right. and, uh, so that, that's something I think, um, really that I found it to be an interesting, like leadership concept within the concept of uh, product, uh, as well. So there's, it, it hit on, um, Something I know is true about myself. Um, I I want to believe that everybody can get there, and it, and I, like when I say that, it's like, well, yeah, that's a good thing to believe, and it is. But there's also cases where like it's not a very helpful thing to believe. And as you said, when we're on day five of a seven day get this logo design done, if someone just hasn't hit it, their style, the way that they're approaching this, they keep trying. Yeah, why am I spending, you know, 20 minutes? And again, this was for me, this was eight to 10 hours a day of me just doing this for this and for these seven days, um, with, the, with the exception of Sunday where I took off. Um, and and it was like, OK, we're we're going and we're going, we're going. But when do I go? You know what? I think I think I've learned that this isn't a direction I want to go. And thank you for for trying. Um, but like it. it it was funny because early on I got a lot of comments that like, wow, you're such a great project owner from these artists from all over the world because I was being so detailed and I was trying to like go in and, and give them the, okay, here's how this is meeting our vision or here's how this isn't. But by the end I had at least one come back and say, hey, if this isn't going somewhere good, could you just tell me? Because then I can move on to other things. Like I'm spending time on this and if I don't have a hope, um, then I'd like to know that. And what was fascinating for me is that that idea almost taken too far of like the endless belief that they'll get it or they'll generate a really cool idea or that they'll get there was not just hurting me from a like a time management perspective and from a getting to the outcome we were trying to get. It was also hurting them because they're like, do I, okay, you keep giving me feedback. Does that mean it's good and you like it? Um, because you keep giving me like not good star ratings and, and it was an interesting thing to realize that, and, and again, it really brought an idea to my mind, which is, yeah, you, you can absolutely be too nice. You can absolutely be so like, okay, um, well, let's keep trying. Well, let's keep trying. Well, let's keep trying. And you end up wasting everybody's time um, when you need to be refining. In the in the creative world as well, we see this all the time. Exactly what you, I mean, I've had, I've had situations where I'm in charge of getting other sound assets done from other people, like a team lead for an audio group or whatnot. And I've had, you know, things where people are giving me sound design assets or musical assets. And it's the same exact thing. How nice do I want to be? If I hear something or I see something and I go, that is not at all 
what we need. My <laughs> my baseline is the opposite of yours. Uh, I'm not usually too nice about it. I'm usually the uh, the opposite of that. I'm a little too blunt at times. <laughs> I, don't, I won't write like this sucks. You know, you're awful. You're fired. But I'll be like, you know, this isn't at all what we're looking for. Try this instead. Uh, so for me, it's always been more of a happy medium approach. How do I how do I approach these people? You guys are giving me giving us great boots on the ground experience for for project leads and project management and all of that. How uh, how do we want to approach this in terms of I'm Joe Blow out in the field and I have a company where these things aren't happening. I can give you a direct example of that. I was uh, at the, my last company. We were using some pretty antiquated software. And I was the person beating the drum for change. We need change. We need change. Here's what we need to do. And I had my whole team on board with me. Yes, the software sucks. It's antiquated. Won't let us get to where we need to go. You know, so we complained about it to our boss who complained to their boss who had a vision about where he wanted to go. And as he was in the room with us delivering the vision, his boss walked in, the VP of the whole org walked in, who espoused a completely different vision than the boss who was giving us his vision, right? And so, I mean, we had like three different levels of bosses with three different levels of visions that all differed from my vision, you know? So we had no sense of direction at all. And uh, the VP and the guy below him actually argued with each other in the meeting in front of us, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it was, anyway, it was just a giant cluster and it didn't go anywhere great. And I wound up leaving the company before they ever solved the problem. So the point is, as we're talking about these great concepts and ideas and what has worked for you individually, uh, Ben and Aaron individually, uh, do we do we want to give this not just an anecdotal response of, well, here's what worked for me, but how do we do we want to form it in the shape of, hey, here's something that you might find yourself in a situation like this. Here are some solid steps you might try to present a vision to someone differently or any, any of these concepts we've been talking about. But uh, is there is there an aspect of this where we take the the teaching experience that all of us have had and throw that into a teaching environment? Yeah, well, yeah. One one example that we've talked about at length would be, um, hey, product leads, be engaged, present, and available daily, um, and 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 that you, and view your primary role as reinforcing and blasting the vision and owning the vision's change like back to the path you own the path in which direction it goes and you own bringing the team back in alignment with the path and it's your responsibility to do that every day and to create it to work with your leaders to create the space for you to do that with minimal external interruption and that particular story you uh you told is really interesting for a couple reasons and i think one of them is it actually touches on topics that ben and i want to go into uh, uh with this with this group later um, like one of them is actually like, it's like a lot of the problems that are happening in that story, actually, some of them have nothing to do with product management or vision. Some of them have to do with like, for example, incentive structure, which is one we want to talk about incentive structure and, uh, and not in terms of like, what do people get paid in bonuses and stuff like that, but incentive structure, like what is the nature of the relationship between you and your manager and how does the behavior of your manager incentivize you to behave in one way or the other? Um, and so like if your manager comes into your meeting and yells at you and disagrees with all of your ideas, you probably feel disempowered, feel like 
you know, you don't really have a lot of autonomy over your work. And it certainly motivates everyone else in the room to not question authority because they are watching their boss get dressed down in front of everybody. Like this stuff happens all the time, right? So it's like that that's actually the incentives that we create for each other and how we interact is actually a whole we, a topic we, we have written down as like a, a potential topic to go into. And that was just one of the examples of uh, some of the stuff that came up when you told that story. The, the whole idea of the whole idea of sort of servant leadership, it, I think, is, you know, it's kind of what you're touching on there, Aaron, like I, the yeah. opposite of the opposite of what that looks like. <laughs> when you were talking, it made me realize we use the word vision and it can mean so many different things in so many different contexts and organizations. And what's fascinating is, you know, we, we wrote like a summary for this for this podcast um, but we were the reason we view this as a success is because the final logos resonated with us. It's not because it was on time or on budget or done elegantly. It's because the solution we chose really works. Everything else is only ever in service and everything else changed a lot in the interest of reaching that outcome. And when I think about what is a vision and you were describing that scenario, I don't know the scenario that was going on at your company. Immediately in my mind, I go, what were they considering a vision? When I'm talking about that, it is a it is a state that I want the world to be in when we're done. Like something I there is something that is not true today that I want to be true. And again, that doesn't mean it has to be huge. It could be very small. Um, but it's there's a difference between now and then. And the vision is trying to articulate that difference. And another really important thing about visions, um, to the scenario you brought up, is that they're solution agnostic. Um, the point is to reach that different future state. The point is not to do it in a particular way. Um, and so I don't know exactly what was going on. And, and there's the classic answer where it's like, well, how, you know, what advice would you give? And my, my best advice is it depends. And, uh, because it's so true that there's so much variance, uh, in each unique scenario, but what you were describing when you, when I hear about that vision clash, was it a disagreement about where we wanted to be and how the world was different? Or was it a difference in how we would get there? Because how we would yeah. get there is what, yeah, that's where and, it was. And so for me, that's actually, that's a strategic conversation. That's about strategy. That's about approach to vision. Um, but it's actually not about the vision. And when we get those things confused, what, what I, when I hear that from you, I wonder has anybody actually articulated the real vision, that different future state? And so if I were to give advice to product leads or stakeholders or CEOs or team leads, whoever you are, and you're trying to get your team somewhere, start by knowing where you want to go, not how you get there. What is different about that future state? You know, there's the... Um, We'll probably talk about it at some point in more depth, but there's an impact outcome output model. The impact is like the, the change in the world. The outcome is the specific shift in behavior from the people that interact with your product that leads to that change in the world. And you might have a bunch of outcomes and you might have a bunch of impacts. And then the output is the thing that you did that caused a change in behavior that led to the world to shift. And this is uh, something by Jeff Patton. And I think, uh, um, I think it's worth noting that like as human beings, we are like nearly singularly obsessed with output. Like it's, it's, it's almost like the, like it's almost, it's almost kind of like a sick pleasure that we have. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and so often 
uh, we ironically end up arguing about output level stuff, like the how, basically, as you described it, Chris, when in reality, we're actually mostly aligned on what we want the world state to be. But but instead, we just pick at each other about like, well, should we use this? Should we use Jira or should we use this other tool? And it's like, guys, like, what do, what are we trying to do? Like, what like what do we want to be true? Right. Um, and and it's it's again, it's um, one of the things that kind of uh, came up for me, too. The idea of the product manager as an intuitive being, um, and it's something we t- discussed earlier when we were talking about this. It's like when you when you're talking about changing the world state, there is almost this innate intuitiveness to that discussion, right? It's like you have to almost feel that something's wrong, and and there's an instinctual kind of tie-in there. And I actually think we tend to like flee away from that because it's it's abstract and because it's. It feel it doesn't feel concrete enough. Like what we all love to have is give me the document that tells me the 20 things I'm supposed to do, and then I'm going to check those 20 things off, and then I'll be done. And I don't have to care about whether it solved the problem or not. I made you the art things. I made you the code. I wrote the code things. I, I made you the project plan. I'm done. Like there's a certainty and a finality to that, and and a and a closure to that that we just absolutely love as humans. But like one of the things I've noticed about the best product managers I've ever worked with is they almost, they just understand the customer so well. And they understand like the end state that we're trying to reach so well that they have this intuitive sense when something's off or when something's on. And I think that also allows them to like evolve the direction they're taking the team as well, because they're like, oh, I thought it was this, but my intuition is saying that's off. And so we're going to change. And uh, so I, I want to call that out too, because I think that that's super important. Because again, I, I, one of the things that I, I feel is a is a is a missed opportunity in the software space is due to the sort of like engineering nature of all the work we do, um, and how technical everything is. I think we tend to want to pull even creative types and even product management and leadership types mm-hmm. towards this certainty. You know, like write it out like it's an equation that's solvable, that I understand, that has specific inputs and outputs. And uh, the reality is, is when we're dealing with human systems and creating outputs that humans interface with, um, it really is a human problem. And a lot of that is intuitive and emotional and all these other things. So yeah. um, that's I, that's a point that came up for me when we were talking just now. I, I want to actually give a, an example I remember from when I was working in um, the R&D space at, at Riot. Um and that just sort of how these things link together, because you want that project plan, right? You want like, okay, here's the dates, here's what we're going to have, here's what, the things we're going to hit. And when you start injecting into those systems, um, rather than an output focus, a impact or outcome focus where you're like thinking, okay, what's the change in behavior we want? Or what's the, what's the way in which the world is different once we're done with this? Instead of we are going to build X system, um, the reality is it completely shifts what project planning looks like. And this is one of the big challenges of um, adopting more iterative or uh, agile type approaches into organizations is they really like the big project plan that says, hey, in nine months, I'm going to have all this stuff done and then we'll be done, right? And for me, I go, I don't know. What are you trying to achieve? Because if if it's just, I just want to have a bunch of stuff done, well, yes, then maybe in nine months, maybe, you know, we can go into estimation some other time, but maybe you'll have a bunch of it done. Um, 
But actually, you, my guess is for almost zero companies out there, do they actually just want a bunch of stuff done? There's actually a set of outcomes they're targeting. And so when I was in that R&D uh, project, they were building out a couple of systems that we wanted to shift how players did planning at the beginning uh, of a round. And so they, would, they were like, well, if we build this particular thing, we believe that players will plan in this way. And so what, what's tricky about this is then you build that into your timeline and you're like, so we're going to do this and it's going to have this outcome. And, and then we're going to build this other thing and it's going to have this other outcome. And then we're going to build this other thing. And it's like, you're, okay, cool. That looks good. Except that you built the first thing and you didn't get the outcome you wanted. And the question now becomes, do you like, well, that's okay. Because we built it, we'll just keep moving on to the other things we said we'd build. Or do you go, wait a minute, there's an outcome that's missing. There's a change. There's a, there's a shift in the world that's not going to happen if we don't actually work on this more or differently. And a, again, a, a good product manager, a good product lead is going, hang on. I'm guessing if you chose to do that one first, it's because it's one of the more important outcomes or impacts you were trying to have. And it may be worth not doing something later that you'd plan to do in order to take another stab at trying to do that thing better and understand, hey, maybe we can actually do this. Maybe we can get there. Um, but so often we get locked into those project plans. Um, we get locked into here's the things we said we were going to do. And in that case, um, they actually did go back and they, they went, okay, wait, how else do we do this? How else do we create a better way or a different way to try to tackle this problem? Um, and Again, that, that I think is good outcome or impact oriented thinking as opposed to just like, well, we're just running the plan. And again, there, there's, a, there's a tension that can happen or feels like it can happen if, to, to briefly talk about incentives, if you're the project manager and you're different from the product manager, let's say, and you're like, well, we're going down, we're executing the plan, we got all the stuff done, and then the product manager comes in and says, hey, it's not having the impact we wanted. We have to redo some stuff. And there's this tent, there's, there can be this instinct as the project manager to throw your hands up in the air and be like, ah, you guys don't know what you want and all this different stuff. That's you as the project manager not acknowledging the uncertainty of the situation and not really, in, in my opinion, really being invested and bought into the vision of where you're trying to go. You are trying to get your project plan done. And if you're in that situation, think about what are the incentives that are driving you? Is it success of the product or is it success of a project plan? And also you have to look at that in the opposite direction as well, because you can totally get into the situation where a product manager and a project manager are disagreeing. It's actually because the product manager doesn't know and can't make up their mind and they just keep changing everything all the time. That could be as frustrating and as negative, but there's this line you have to walk where it's, are we both going towards that same place? And that's, again, to come back to Chris, like where, where you were talking about that, that organization, figure out that vision, figure out that impact. What's the change in the world that's going to be different after you're done? If we're all going there, it actually makes it much easier for us to work through these little things. We're like, oh, shoot, now the project plan has to change or, oh, the product vision is changing or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I came up with the idea of, uh, of forests to illustrate exactly what you're talking about. Right, there are a lot of different forests around, and within those forests are a bunch of paths. Our product manager might say, "Hey, we want to be in this forest," and the project manager goes, "Cool, team, explore all these paths," and they explore them all, and none of them come up with the fruitful thing that they're looking for at the end of the path. But the project manager is now married to this forest, right? So when the product manager manager comes back and says, "You know, 
we're not in the right forest, as it turns out. We need to go over to, let's try exploring this forest. And that's where you start getting the pushback. That's that uncomfortable pushback you're talking about. No, no, we like this forest. We've explored this forest. We know every bit of this forest. This is a good forest. Maybe, but it's not the forest we need to be in to get, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or whatever it is we're looking for, you know. So oftentimes, yeah. uh, even sometimes uh, you find that you're in the right forest. You just haven't found the right, the, the correct path yet. Um, and trying to get people to switch can be challenging, you know, when you have people that are on, that like the path they're on. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a decent analogy there. Aaron, oh, yeah, no, gonna... definitely. No, that's uh, that's that's all great. And also segues us because um, one of the things that I think you guys are both uh, you have both like kind of like skirted the edges of, which is, I think, um, cr a critical thing. Like uh, when we were going through this process, one of the things I mean, I've been doing this for years. Right. And I've been teaching this for years. And it's always nice to immerse myself in a concept where I go back to the academic material or I go back to the learning material and I'm like, oh my God, this resonates so much in this moment. And one of the things that I, I felt that with was the idea of um, time boxing. And it's funny because mm -hmm. so much of what we're talking about is abstract and behavioral, right? We're like, Product managers should act this way. The team should do this and give feedback like this. And like, and, and I think I, I can really see a lot of discerning individuals listening to this and being like, yeah, but what's the fucking plan? Like, what are we going to do? Like, I, look, man, all the stuff you're so saying sounds great. But like, I, at the end of the day, I need to create some kind of stuff that we need to do in order of operations. And, and this is where I think that the, the idea of the time box really comes in when it comes to agility. And the time box has become almost this like, or the sprint or whatever you want to call it, has become almost this like kind of um, very underappreciated uh, and, and, and poorly applied concept uh, that has lost most of its value. And to me, um, there were very natural time boxes built into the way that Ben and I, back to the logo project, interacted with the project. There was the one week project time box that we had could not change. That was that was set in stone. And then Ben and I were having daily interactions where we were making decisions constantly. And and because those time boxes were strictly held and we didn't really question them at any point, um, it forced us to bring expediency into all of our interactions all the time. So back to your forest analogy, Chris. It wasn't it, it, it like. I think what's so powerful about agility is you can say, we're going to explore this forest for a maximum of three days. We're going to see what comes out of it. And then we're going to check what came out of it. And we're going to decide whether we stick in this forest or we move to another one. Right. And that's, what's so beautiful. And that allows you to sort of encapsulate that uncertainty because at no point did we know, like, this is exactly what we want. We didn't know which artist was going to generate the winning design. We didn't even necessarily know why the hell we were getting helmets. You know, we were just, there was a lot of confusion there, right? And, and, but, but because we limited ourselves and because every day when Ben and I came together, we said, here's what we got, here's where we're at, here's how far off we feel like we're from the vision. What are we going to focus on next? And what are we going to cut? Like, what are we going to cut? What are we going to focus on? And we were just making deliberate investments every day. And we were saying that the goal is not to make all the right decisions today. The goal is to make as many effective decisions as we can and learn as quickly as possible. Yes. And so, so on the subject of iteration and learning, I feel like that was a key component of this. And, and to me, the concept of iteration and learning and how that ma is married in with the time box 
almost can't be overstated because I, I see so many people not taking their sprints seriously or not taking their time boxes seriously. But I just want to say to everybody, like I've always the, the this element of um, agility, the, the concept of time boxing or, or sprints within the context of scrum have always been something close to my heart. And I've always liked to create a sort of razor edge around that and a sort of finality around that, not because I want to be limiting. Not because I think it's right to like try to force all your work into two weeks, but because there's a point where you have to stop. You have to look at what you're doing and the direction you're going and you have to ask, okay, what came out of this? Was it what we wanted? Are we in the right spot? Do we need to change? And that is what those boundaries allow you to do. And the more rapidly you engage with those boundaries, like the shorter your time boxes are, the more you can... Uh, rapidly respond to that uncertainty. And so I, I really think time boxes have ended up being this really threatening thing in our space these days where like, I feel like a lot of contributors hate them because they feel constrained by them and product managers and, and, and project managers don't take them seriously. It's just like, it, it ends up just being a bucket I can fill with shit. And then like, you know, <laughs> whether it works or not, I just get to fill the next bucket with shit. And it becomes a sort of arbitrary set of boundaries that we don't really do anything with. And and I, I just think that that's such a missed opportunity because, again, um, I really feel like those time boxes forced Ben and I to make decisions very, very quickly. And, and I do think that when I look over the life cycle of that project, that that benefited us dramatically. We had to really think on our toes and ask ourselves, like, where are we putting our money and effort down right now? Because, like, if it's not in the right spots we're wasting time. Like we don't, we don't, you know, and, and again, you don't know, we were lucky actually, I think in a way that the project boundaries forced us within that time box. But I think that, that so it's, I think it's actually harder psychologically to do that artificially. Um, but um, I really think that that was an important part of the way that we approach that. Um, and, and again, it also did manifest in terms of like, Hey Aaron, we were, we need to meet Friday. And I'm like, well, I can't meet Friday. And Ben was like, well, I need to make decisions on Friday. And so um, if you're not there, I'm going to make them without you. And so I said, okay, you know, that's reasonable. Um, and so I think, I just think that those time boxes are so, so powerful and necessary. Yeah. There's, there's something interesting that you made me realize. And I, I remember falling into this trap as a scrum master or dev manager or whatever, whatever my role was at the time um, of almost viewing the iteration length as like, oh, this is the meeting cadence length, Right. We, this is this is the frequency with which we do meetings, but really there's just this never-ending sort of line of stuff just rolling forward over and over and over again because we're not taking that time box seriously. And I, when when I think about how often that happened in the spaces where I was, there was always this thing that like didn't feel right about it, but there was always this pushback. It's almost like if if you just had one giant project timeline that lasted nine months, right? Well, um, if you never check in, then at the end of that time frame, you can fail once. And that's it. Up until that point, you can just pretend everything's fine. And so many organizations do. And I keep trying to give like the good, don't worry, we're 99.5% there. And then like two months later, we're 99.7% there. And like whatever, however that ends up rolling out. And when you introduce the idea of sprints, there's this idea that like, well, now we can fail almost constantly. And the question is, <laughs> is that valuable or threatening? 
Like do, when you, when your team, when every leader in that space, when they view that, do they go awesome? Because every single time we don't meet or meet, we learn, or we don't meet or meet our objectives, we learn. Um, is that a great thing? Or is that like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, someone somewhere is going to look at this and they're going to be like, well, you know, Ben failed 13 of his last 30 sprints with his team. I'm not sure he's a very good scrum master, right? It, if you're in that space, again, to come back to the idea of incentives, I don't want that. And so I'll figure out a way to make it look like, and I remember back when sprint reports were a thing, I'm sure you remember that at Riot as well, that we got rid of them, but there was like this super goofy thing where like, you know, you kind of come up to the Friday, the last day of the sprint, and suddenly everybody's like, oh, we just took these things out and we changed this, and look up, we did it, yep, green, we're green, we're not red, don't, don't look at us. And all of that, what is that encouraging? What's going on um, behind the scenes there? And it's actually that like you're not encouraging learning and you're not encouraging true iteration because that was that was what we were using those time box for to make more expedient decisions um and and i think the the decision the idea of making decisions within your time boxes or at the end of your time boxes is very related to learning because it's like what did we learn and what do we need to do about it like what do we need to change about the way we're operating based on what we learned in the last time box that's the key. That's the secret sauce. That's the magic stuff. Because again, the, I, the the failure with time boxes, and I think the reason, justifiably so, that so many developers and so many people are cynical about them is because it ends up just being like, okay, there's a bucket and we put work into it. And we do that right. sequentially. Next week, there's another bucket and we put more work into it. It's not about the work. It's not about getting the things done. I mean, that's also important for completely separate reasons. But none of it matters if you don't derive learning and you don't make effective decisions based on that learning. Or, or I should say, sorry, I'm going to say, I'm going to just say make decisions based on that learning. Because yeah. you can, you, you'll try to make the most effective decisions you can. Some of them will be wrong. So I say, screw it. Go to the next time box. Yeah. Well, and, and what's fascinating too, we were talking about output versus outcome or impact, right? That idea of I fill up my bucket of stuff. What's the stuff? The stuff is the output. Um, it's not the vision. It's not where you're trying to go. It's not the change you're trying to create in the world through the product with your audience. It's just stuff. And again, this the constant sort of like, and then we roll it all over to the next sprint because we didn't get it. We roll it all over to the next sprint. And then we, you know, and we get to have the conversations about how like, can we capture partial story points? It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, like we're totally not even operating in the right space here. We're not thinking about this properly. And because Again, come back. What are you trying to do? Um, I, I worked with a, a company that my, my brother works at just for, I just helped do so a little bit of consulting with them. And one of the things I kept focusing on was value. What's the value? What are you trying to achieve? What's the value? Whenever, almost whenever they'd ask me a question, be like, what's the value? So when you're doing an iteration, when you're doing a sprint, what's the value in it? If there is none inside of your organization, or if it's literally just, I don't know, it just basically, that's when we do retros and plannings, according to this. That's not really a time box. That's not really a sprint in the scrum sense or an iteration of of any particular. That's just a meeting cadence. And that's fine. You can have that. But don't then treat it like it's something that it's not. Um, We had scrum sprints in our org as well, followed by either no retrospective at all. (laughs) So no learning about what worked and what didn't. Or... um, retrospectives that were essentially irrelevant and wouldn't talk about 
the key points of what could we really take away from this? How can we iteratively change this? What can we do to, to, to make this better so that we don't waste two weeks or a month again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and they never quite figured that out. So very extremely relevant to what you're saying. So I'm, I'm just saying this for, for all the people listening who may have some real world examples, like where you're seeing this in your company. I mean, it's, it's out there. So what Ben said is priceless. There's one thing I, I wanted to hit real quick. Um, because we talked about what the way we were doing iterations, uh, Aaron, you mentioned some of it. I just want to walk the people that are listening through what that was for me. And and this evolved very organically throughout the course of the seven days. So basically there was a seven day time box at the beginning. You give, you have a brief and you kick it out and a bunch of artists respond with ideas. Um, and then at the end of the seven days, you pick the idea that you want and someone gets awarded the, the money for it. Um, and this was the one thing I didn't like about this is that it meant that all of the people that were on the team, uh, in quotes, uh, were actually competing with each other, which was unfortunate. Um, but that was the nature of, of working with CrowdSpring. And I think it's just part of how that works. And it did, it did, we did get to a good spot. So what ended up emerging was basically I would wake up and um, when I started working, I would start giving feedback on whatever designs had come in overnight because the artists were all around the world. Whatever designs I hadn't given feedback on, I would do star ratings, I would write notes in. And sometime, I basically do that uh, throughout the day and I'd be trying to put together, okay, what's working, what's not? And I'd be thinking about what is going to be my vision shift brief of the day. And every day I created a, here's here's the newest and most latest changes to what I think the vision is with either that's more detail around it or actual shifts in where we thought we were going. Um, and I, so I'd be trying to put that together, but a lot of it was just me typing in notes and seeing what came back from it. Um, and depending on the artist, some would take a few days to get to an idea. Some took just an hour and then I'd see another one, uh, in the next hour or even 15 minutes later. Um, and then in the afternoon or evening, I would have a sync with my stakeholder, Aaron, Um, where I would pull him in and say, this is what I've seen so far. This is the type of feedback I'm getting. These are the ones I think that are promising. Um, Here's how I think the vision might have shifted, and here's how I'm thinking about talking to them next time. And I want to call out here, we talked about it a little bit in the roles. This was not me asking for permission per se, but it was me soliciting his counsel as somebody with uh, who I – I knew had a very important piece of the vision of where we were trying to go and a different perspective for me. So then that would take us prob- anywhere between, I think, half an hour or an hour, depending on the day. Um, and then after that, I would write my brief. Here's the update to the vision. Um, that went out to everybody that was working on it. And then uh, keep giving feedback uh, on whatever was happening, including referring people to the brief if I felt like they hadn't been looking at them. Um, and then, you know, go to bed, wake up next day, kind of do it again. That was sort of an iteration, a, a one day iteration. And over the course of the seven days, we actually really got to what we thought was a, a great point. So I just wanted to let people know that was what that cycle looked like for us practically. And, and this, this actually segues into, I think the last thing we want to cover, which, um, is uh, something that is really kind of a special gooey warm spot in both Ben and I's hearts, which is uh, actually kind of laced into a lot of the topics we've discussed up to this point in the context of this project, which is really the idea of managing uncertainty and embracing uncertainty in this context. Because uh, from a cultural point of view, from a behavioral point of view, and Ben and I are gonna talk a lot more about this in in subsequent um, issues. 
so much of the way we act when it comes to these things is a, is about our comfort level with uncertainty and how we sort of understand uncertainty and deal with it. Um, one of the things I absolutely love about the way Ben approached this as a product lead, but it also the way we approach this was that, um, again, that concept, uh, that goofy concept, that acronym, ICKY-WICKY, I'll know it when I see it. Um, there was this openness to going, okay, we've encapsulated the vision. We've articulated it today, this morning, as best we could based on what we learned yesterday. We've blasted that out. And now we're going to see what comes back. It wasn't like I have a very perfectly crisp and clear expectation about what's going to come back. Mm -hmm. It's let's see what's going to come back. And I have confidence that when I see that thing that resonates, I'm going to be like, yes, that's it. That's it. Okay. That's the direction we're going. And there's there's like a certain openness and willingness to embrace uh, not knowing the answer up front in that, that I'm actually is one of the things I'm most proud of about this. And I think, again, we have really riot to thank a lot for um, these behaviors developing in us over time and, and the education we had there and the education we've given on these subjects. This is the reality of the world we live in today. Like we, we couldn't know. And if we had tried to force ourselves to know best case scenario, we would have had a hundred point bullet list of exactly what the thing we were looking for looks like. And we would have almost corralled ourselves down a path that may not have been a good path just because we didn't want to be wrong. And I hate to say it, but this is actually one of the banes of good software projects. I see this all the time. It's like, I've seen projects where we made that hundred point bullet list. We built that thing exactly to spec. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't resonate at all. And we go back and convince ourselves that that was the thing we wanted the whole time. That is a really sad place to be. And, and, and that is not, that is not a good paradigm. And that, what that is, is that it's a very human thing to do. That's us being unwilling to embrace uncertainty and, and forcing ourselves into this world where it's like, nope, we knew exactly what we wanted. We built exactly what we wanted. The plan was on point and it was good. We finished it and therefore it was good. And it's like, no, it wasn't. You didn't move the needle. You didn't have the impact you wanted. You didn't change the customer's behavior. So I think when you walk into this and you say, I'll know it when I see it, um, and, and you have confidence in that because you understand the customer, because you understand the vision. I think that's a really powerful place to be. And, and so I, and I, think, I think that's something that really was, was an important kind of psychological pattern that we brought into this that I, I'm personally, I feel really good about. And it was, again, another one of those big light bulbs for me and, and hopefully how I run my projects in the future. You've been listening to The Valarin Perspective. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email sometime at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. That's V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc. 